and follow along. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, if you'll please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where Christ, who is our life, appears, or when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with its deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that now as uh, we hear your word, that you would open our minds to understand, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive it, so that we might leave transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't miss the point of why we read these complimentary passages to the text that we're going to study. I know this is a problem. Let's see, but we'll get this fixed. One of these mics is on. There we go. Is that better? Can you hear me? No, now this one's not on. You turned me on. All right. Yeah, okay, let's testing one more time. I do want you to hear what the Spirit says through the messages to the churches, to the church this morning. Okay, I'm, I'm keeping on going a little bit before getting into the substance of it. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Okay, and, and, and no reverberation. All right. Don't miss the point 
of reading these complementary passages uh, before we read the letter to the churches. The Apostle Paul is telling the Colossians and the church at Colossae, and through that letter, us, what we as a church ought to be and to do, what we as Christians, individual Christians, ought to, to be and to do. He tells us to fix our minds, to keep seeking Christ who is above, that we are to put off these things that belong to the old nature and to put on these things that are new nature. And as we remember those things, read those things again this afternoon. If this is a text that you could memorize and put to heart and God will bring it to mind often in your life. You, you realize what God calls us as a church to be and to do. And then we'll read the letter to the church at Pergamum. And we'll see how the church has begun to be faithful on the one hand, but be faithful, but it's that but that bothers me yeah, this morning. I think in many ways, this church could be one, a, a letter to a church that is more like us in the PCA, those who are committed to Christ and committed to his word still uh, hold leadership, still ha have authority. Uh, the heresies are a minority. But, 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 that drives me crazy. You did not renounce your faith in me, but. Let's read the, if you weren't awake before, you are now. This just reminds me so much of our church planting days. I won't tell you the story about when I dropped the Lord's Supper. As we turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, this time I'm going to read the whole letter to you. Remember, this is news from heaven addressed to the church through these letters to the seven churches. There's seven different types of churches. I've introduced you. I've been kind of unfolding uh, the, uh, the, the study of these letters, giving you a little bit each time. Last week, I told you about the form of each of the letters, and it's in your bulletin. Look for, in the form of the letter, the different elements uh, of that form addressed to the letter at Pergamum, and see if you can see them uh, yourself before we work, it th work through it. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, but I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise... I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. 
I will also give him a white stone with the new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would hear this letter as one written to us. If the shoe fits, let us wear it and let us repent and turn to be faithful to you and to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To the angel of the church in Pergamum. You see in your bulletin the map, uh, Pergamum's at the top, the northernmost end of all of these seven uh, cities. John is writing letters to these churches as though he's traveling in the, the big circle uh, around them. Uh, there is a uh, an escalation in these middle three churches of heresy being tolerated to being dominant and to the, then the church being dead in these three middle uh, churches. I'm going to read to you from the commentary that I've been using uh, for this study. It's by Leon Morris. It's the Tyndale New Testament commentary, so that gives you an idea of, of my source. I just thought this was uh, interesting to read about Pergamum. Pergamum was never important. Whoa. How would you like it if almost 2,000 years from now, a commentary on the state of the church in our day started with, Powhatan was never important. Whew, that kind of gets you. Until what made them important? Until it became the capital of the independent kingdom of the Attalids after Alexander the Great. Its last king willed it to Rome in 133 BC, when it apparently became capital of the Roman province of Asia. About 11 miles inland, it did not have a good trading position. But apart from its administrative importance, it also was significant for its great library said to have contained more than 100,000 parchment scrolls. Indeed, our word parchment is derived from the name Pergamum. It's something that I'd never noticed before reading it this way. What do we call this? We call this the scriptures, the Bible, the writings. They were on parchments. And what is emphasized, did you notice it in the letter to Pergamum? He who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Uh, what does that remind you of? The word of God. There's something that fits in this letter to Pergamum in God's providence. The very problem they began to have in tolerating something that was not according to the word of God. They were known in their name for their writings, their scriptures, their parchments. It was an important religious center. People came from all over the world to be healed by the god Asclepius. And Pergamum has been described as the lords of the ancient world, L-O-U-R-D-E-S, which must have been the place of healing. Zeus, Zionysius, and Athene also had important temples in the city. Pergamum was a center of Caesar worship. Now, this is where it begins to really come alive, because this is the reason this is important is the letter to the Pergamum says, twice where Satan dwells. What's that a reference to? 
Well, it was known for its Caesar worship, and it had a temple dedicated to Rome as early as 29 BC. It attained the covenant title Neocharos, Temple Sweeper. I don't know why that's significant, Temple Sweeper, except that it's important as a center, a first center of Caesar worship. Before either Smyrna or Ephesus, and took its devotion to emperor worship seriously. In due course, it added a second and third temple in honor of the emperor. It was the principal center of the imperial cult in this part of the world. But emperor worship was not its sole religious activity. Beyond the city was a great conical hill of volcano, the site of a multitude of heathen temples. In the shadow of this volcano hill, full of pagan temples, and as a center of emperor worship, the church tries to be faithful in the city where Satan dwells. Let's work through the letter. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom you must give account. All of that is brought to mind as Jesus is, is described here as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Each of these descriptions is drawn from the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. So we won't take the time to go back and look at that, but we established that last week. So John is unfolding who Jesus is. Why is this important in Pergamum? It's because they are faithful, but there's no secret that can be hidden from him. He knows everything, and he judges the heart, the hidden things. He knows what's going on in our lives. This is a church whose leaders are able to protect the flock from the heresies. They, it's not the next church. We looked at Thyatira on Palm Sunday. Those who were faithful were a minority, and the, the word to them was simply, hold on. I won't add anything to burden you. I know you can't do anything about the church being taken over by those who have embraced the teachings of Jezebel, embraced the idol worship going around. And the real believers must have suffered greatly to only have the, a church that was so far gone. Here we have a church where the leaders still can lead and protect the flock from those heresies. And the but is because the leaders are not dealing with that. They're allowing the uh, heresies to, to creep in. Jesus knows what's going on. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, Jesus is actually much more gracious than I have been as a preacher. 
Because what did I emphasize in my uh, introduction? I emphasize the but. But this I have against you, didn't I? Jesus puts first and foremost in his letter to this church what he commends them for. And he does it dramatically, twice framing his commendation. I know where you live, where Satan dwells. I believe that is a, a, a reference to the emperor worship. But it might just, it doesn't have to be only that. All the pagan deities surround that too. This hill that is visible, this overshadows the city, overshadowed the church. And yet they were faithful. Even, and this is the one letter where someone uh, actually had already been martyred. Last week, we looked at the church uh, of Smyrna, where the letter said, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Here, they were faithful, even when one of them had been killed. Now, Antipas is a name that can be associated with some of the, the cruel uh, Roman leaders. It's not a, the same Antipas. In our family, my uh, wife's sister, Anne, married a Jim, and her brother, Jim, married an Anne, and my son, Davison, married an Anne, and we were getting locked into this family. There are many people with the same names. So don't worry about trying to figure out who Antipas was by referring to some other person. He was a Christian a leader in this church who was a martyr in this church. And the church was faithful. This is not just Jesus being nice before he gets to the main thing. It's real commendation. And I pray that if, if, if Jesus were to write a letter specifically to this church or to our denomination, that he would say, I know you have been faithful in the culture that seems to be increasingly drifting and turning away from me. Wouldn't that be a great commendation? Yeah, I believe he would write that. I think this is a letter that fits. So there's a call in the nevertheless, in the but, that we don't go down that road. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Okay, let's think about Balaam a little bit. This is not to the story of Balaam that's recorded in Scripture for us. You know the story about Balaam in, in, uh, in the Old Testament when he was hired to curse Israel and God didn't let him do it. His own donkey saw an angel standing in the way and turned and rebuked Balaam when Balaam was beating it to move on forward so he could curse the Israelites. And when he got to the place where he would have cursed the Israelites, God blessed the Israelites through him instead. Balaam realized the futility of directly going after God's people in that instance. So tradition, which is now verified in the word of God, has it that he went back to Balak, who had hired him to curse Israel. He said, you can't do it directly. This is how to bring them down. 
seduce them into sexual immorality. If you can seduce them into sexual immorality, they will break covenant with God, and God will no longer protect them. Hmm. That's how God can get at faithful people, not directly bringing us down when we're standing on him and his word, but by seducing God's people. Isn't it distressing to think of the names of great Christian leaders and teachers who have fallen in this way? It just breaks our hearts. We know in the Bible that it, it's happened you know, over the centuries, the heroes of faith, David and Bathsheba. And God was, it was merciful and gracious. He didn't take the kingdom away from David or David's son. He didn't, God's covenant didn't rest on David's performance. It rested on himself and his faithfulness. But David did bring great pain and consequence into his own family that way. So we want to be faithful and we want to be aware of this kind of seduction that Satan could draw us into falling away through sexual immorality. Now, in the form of the pagan religions, it was very overt. If you can draw them into to sexual immorality, then God will, you know, they will cease to trust in God and, and they'll begin to falter as a church. There's another similar you know, error in verse 15, likewise, in the same way. You also have those who hold to the teachings of Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans is a very obscure reference. We only have it in Revelation. We don't know much about them, but it certainly seems to be in the same way. Likewise, you have people that are teaching compromise with sexual immorality. They were probably incorporating some sort of the pagan idol worship into it's okay as a church. You know, God's gracious. We know in the Corinthian church, that they, they ran with God's grace so much that they were proud when the man was sleeping with his father's wife. Paul said, you shouldn't be proud. You should be ashamed. Even the pagans don't do this. So this is a way that God will, that, that Satan will try to, to discredit God's people. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my, my mouth. What a mercy there. He doesn't say, I'll come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He's saying to the churches, when they have leadership, responsibility, and influence, and ability to protect God's flock, uh, to stand uh, against these things, um, he says, you take care of it. You're in charge of my flock. I will work through you to do it. But if you don't, I'll take care of it. And there's some reassurance and a set up straight kind of rebuke in that, isn't it? That the one who has, whose, whose word is like a sharp two-edged sword will take care of it. And I will, I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, with my word. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How do we hear this? How do we apply this? At first, we need to remember you know, all these letters, uh, the letters to the Ephesians were faithful. They stood against the teachings of the Nicolaitans. They didn't fall into this error, but they lost the love they had at first. 
Satan was getting at them by getting them just to be doctrinaire, to have the right set of beliefs. But they lost their love for Christ. They lost their love for each other. And they were in danger of losing their candlestick because you lose the gospel when you no longer are so uh, gripped by the, the love of Christ that compels us to love him in return and love one another. You can be doctrinaire and, and fall that way. Here, the Christians are not rebuked for losing the love they had at first, but they were allowing these things to creep in the side. You have some among you, a minority, yes, but they were tolerating it. Boy, we are always prone to, the church will never be perfect. It will never be perfect. And don't become cynical and scorn the church because of the failures of, of great leaders. Perhaps some that you read their books, you, it, they, they meant a lot to you. They helped you in your uh, understanding of the gospel and in discipleship. And then you find out, I'm going to name a name of the, uh, no, I'm not going to name a name from the pulpit. You fill in your blanks because there are too many Christian leaders that have, have done that, aren't there? But we're in a position where we can understand God's grace to us and we still love the church in spite of these fallennesses. Do you love David? Do you still remember David who, who stood up trusting in God against Goliath? Or he had thrown him on the trash heap because of Bathsheba? God didn't. God didn't. We learn from David and his faltering, Peter and his denying Christ, that we should not present ourselves to the world as perfect people. As people have got it right and we look down their noses at them. And we will falter. And there will be those who falter in, in our churches and our congregations. There's something about learning how to love the sinner and hate the sin that's hard to do. I'm going to repeat that. How do we love the sinner and hate the sin? If we can't do that, if we either love the sinner and just excuse the sin, we'll do that in our own lives. And we'll do it in our church. And this letter will be, the, the shoe fits for us exactly if we fall off on that side. But if we hate the sin and forget how to love the sinner, we've somehow lost the gospel, haven't we? We need to do both. We need to think about that. Here's a specific application. How many of you uh, are aware of, uh, probably many of you uh, in this church, that uh, at our last General Assembly, the PCA uh, issued a, a ad interim study committee report on human sexuality. And it was basically dealing with the issues of homosexuality. Are most of you familiar with that? that you know, it was going on in our denomination? Uh, two years before that, the committee was established to, to study it and to try to work a paper uh, to, to deal with the issue faithfully, uh, according to scripture, and pastorally showing the love of God, grace and truth. And they did a great job. They really did. Now, at General Assembly on Thursday night, when we were going to go back and debate some of the overtures, that had been sent down to presbyteries, and a couple of the overtures had to do with this, this issue. Mary fell and broke her hip. 
as we were going to dinner. We did, I didn't make it back. I was in the hospital with Mary when they were debating the overtures, but I was there for the 12 statements. And I came home from the General Assembly just thinking, these 12 statements are really good. I brought a copy in case anybody has not had a chance to see them. And I just give it to you, just print it off from my printer. These 12 statements, the preamble of the 12 statements are what the General Assembly overwhelmingly adopted. The study committee unanimously recommended these things to uh, the General Assembly, and they are biblically committed, and they are pastorally toned. They're a good expression of how to hate the sin and love the sinner. And I was just rejoicing. But I've noticed this year that what I missed on Thursday night, because overtures were approved and sent down to presbyteries, that's been the main subject of discussion and debate. Hasn't it? And maybe it has among some of you. And you've been wondering, should Presbyteries approve this or not approve this? And it, it can sound like if Presbyteries don't approve overtures to put into the uh, ordination examinations, the applications of the principles we adopted in the 12 statements, that somehow we're embracing the opposite. Now, I, got, I got real concerned about that because if our congregations begin to think presbyteries and presbyteries are not going to approve the two overtures that had to do with the examination. But it's not because they embrace the opposite. The primary reason is because we already have a confession of faith and we have a study paper that we have affirmed overwhelmingly saying this to, to spell this out in the examination questions. It's already included. It's to, to adopt these as, as though we haven't embraced these all along. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't pastors and people in the PCA that I disagree with on how they, they uh, apply these things. But in many ways, I wish, this is my personal view, wish the overtures hadn't passed so that the discussion would have been, let's study the 12 statements and see what our church says on this issue. That would have been the discussion. And you would have been reassured that this church is biblically committed and pastorally toned. I wish that had been the discussion uh, this year. So that's just an area where we were in danger of perhaps embracing and, and holding on to things that our culture is promoting in the, in the area of sexuality. It would have been so much like what the Christians in the first century were facing. And people were so concerned, we had record-breaking attendance at General Assembly this last year. We had great concern about that. And the great paper that came out of the study uh, committee unanimously presented. And I just encourage you to read those things. Now, there are many more papers that attended these things that were have on both sides. There might be some things that you disagree with this one or you liked that one better or whatever. Those weren't the things that were adopted by the General Assembly. It was the preamble and the 12 statements that was embraced by the General Assembly that's the position of our church. Praise God for that, and let's run with that, not to be proud of ourselves, because, see, Satan will tempt us to fall off the horse in so many different directions. Once we get proud of, oh, we've got it right, then we slide back into the Ephesians thing, that we're doctrinaire, we've got the doctrine right, and we've lost our love because we're proud and kind of self-righteous about it. We should be called by this paper to address that, that issue that's so hard to get right. How do you hate the sin and yet love the sinner? We tend to do one or the other. 
There's so many ways to fall off of a horse that a unicycle is a better illustration. It's not just the right or the left, just 360 degrees worth of ways to fall off. Uh, and, and, and I ride a unicycle and back at Sycamore, I actually used a unicycle for an illustration. It was the craziest illustration I ever did. And I thought about it. I thought about it this time and I thought, no, my unicycle has a flat tire, so I can't do it. But there's something, and the point of the illustration is we trust in Christ. To have a balanced life is to be centered on Christ and on his word, not to fall off to the right or to the left, to be centered on his word. That's balance. Balance is not halfway compromising with the world and not being too fanatical in our faith. And it's not fitting in with the world. We're in the world, but not of it. But it's to be centered on Christ and his word, and not to fall off in any direction. The unicycle is a great illustration for how exciting it, it is to actually ride the unicycle and to watch your pastor ride it because everybody sat up and got nervous. I had somebody after say, don't you do that in the second service. Because you know, to live the Christian life centered on Christ is exciting. It's a ride. It's not doctrinaire. Neither is it falling off one side or the other. This letter to the Pergamon church says, I know you're faithful. In, in a city where Satan lives, faithful unto death. And you didn't renounce your faith in me. But they were beginning to tolerate and embrace things creeping in. Just as Balaam advised Balak, just seduce them. Seduce them away. And they were beginning to tolerate that. And this letter says, don't allow that. Praise God that our church stood well this last year. But you know, as long as we're in this fallen world, the, the temptations will be continual. And we need to be vigilant. And if, he, if Satan can't get us to fall off by seducing us, he gets to fall off on the other side by being self-righteous. Love the sinner. Hate the sin and be faithful to the end. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in this letter, Jesus says to his church, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Jesus said that your word is the bread of life. Man doesn't live by physical bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Give us a zeal for your word to apply, to apply it to the different areas of life. Jesus went on to say, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. Heavenly Father, you've made us into living stones through Christ who clothes us in his righteousness, though our sins were as scarlet. They are now as white as snow because we are clothed in the righteousness of your very son. And he has paid for our sins. And you've given us a new name as a child of God. We praise you for that. It's known only to him who receives it. 
Father, you see the heart. Lord Jesus, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. We can't hide anything from you. We know where we stand with you. The heart's deceitful and desperately wicked. We might deceive ourselves into thinking we're okay with you. But in our heart of hearts, we, we can't see one another's hearts. But we could see our own. And I pray that if there's anyone here that's just in church and just going through the motions and doing the right things, believing the right things, that hasn't responded to you, that you would move in their hearts and call them to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask the elders to come forward.